Welcome back to a new year and the first episode of 2019 of the Dental Bright Bites podcast. I am so excited for this one. I think I say that every time, but I really am. Today, I am going to be interviewing Perrin Desports of Tusk Partners, and we're actually doing this in a three-part series. Perrin just has so much great information to share about the DSO space, which is the largest growing segment of the dental industry right now. So we're going to break it down for you. But to start, today we'll be talking about the top three things that every dentist struggles with when building a group practice. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Perrin. Perrin is the co-founder and partner at Tusk. He has over 22 years of leadership, sales, operations, and P&L management experience in the dental industry. And he even rebuilt and successfully led three branches for our very own Patterson Dental. So Tusk Partners provides industry-leading resources to group dental practices and DSOs with over 70 years of combined experience. They help clients start, grow, and sell their DSO by combining historical experience with a progressive vision for the evolving industry in order to create the greatest value for their clients. Without further ado, let's get into this great episode. All right, I have Perrin Desports here with me today, the co-founder and partner of Tusk Partners. Now, as you know, they're a consulting merger and acquisitions advisory exclusively in the dental space. Thank you so much, Perrin, for coming on the podcast today. I'm so excited to pick your brain. Thanks, Sarah, for having me. I I really appreciate the invite and hopefully share a little bit of wit and wisdom with some of your your colleagues and some of your clients um, that might help them as they start to grow and scale a group practice. Awesome. So we're going to do this in a three-part series because you have so much great information to share. So what we're starting with today is the top three things that every dentist struggles with when building a group practice. Now you're the expert in this space. I've heard you speak before. Um, You almost know a little too much. (laughs) Um, so I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have to say for your, for your tips on this. Yeah, well, thanks. You're too kind first and <laughs> foremost. And if, if this is going to be a, a three part series on everything I know, each segment might be about 90 seconds in length. So, um, <laughs> perfect for your audience when they're stuck at a red light, right? Awesome. <laughs> and so on a more serious note, um, we work with a lot of founder owner doctors of small and emerging groups. Uh, these are the, the founder owner doctor led groups, roughly two to 25 locations in terms of size. Um, but they all seem to, to struggle with a couple of things early on in the formation of the business. And it's something that we've seen time and time again. It doesn't matter what area of the country you're located in, it doesn't matter if you're a general dentistry group or a specialty group. Um, but there are th- three things that um, seem to crop up most often with our clients or the people that we're, uh, that we're working with. And in no particular order of um, priority or even importance, uh, they are the, the struggles of the founder of the group uh, transitioning from a clinical role to a leadership role. Uh, there is the aspect of hitting what we call the debt funding wall, because uh, almost all of these groups are, are uh, using bank funds to grow. Um, 
and then ultimately uh, attracting entertaining key associates. Uh, and that doesn't matter if you're two or three locations or 823 locations. Um, attracting entertaining talent at all level is uh, uh, quite a struggle for, um, for any group of any size and scope. And you work with people when they're just at one location and they're dreaming of growing as well, correct? Yeah. So let's face it. I mean, the, the group practice space is the fastest growing space in all of dentistry. And I think every dentist uh, knows someone who's, who's, who is either part of a group practice or has started a group practice or potentially who's sold a group practice. Uh, and everybody's interested in it. So I think there's a lot of curiosity around the space. Um, I think there's a lot of um, uh, kind of the, the following the pack mentality, you know, how hard can it be? Um, I'm, I'm one location, I'm only 851 locations away from being the next Heartland Dental. It's, it's easy, I'm gonna do it too. Um, and so I think when we end up uh, talking with clients that are uh, one location, they've typically built a very solid dental practice that is that one location. Uh, and they think it's pretty easy just to go from one to two. You know, it's just twice as many people. It's just twice as many locations. It's not that big of a challenge. And, and I liken it to, to having children. Everybody that has more than one child says that it, things don't get more complicated when you go from one to two. They're geometrically more complicated, um, mm -hmm. which is probably why my wife and I only have one child. But that's a story <laughs> for another day, too. Um, so yeah, we, to answer your question directly, we do work with people who just have one uh, location. Some of them um, uh, are intent upon scaling and growing a group and others, uh, we talk out of it, honestly, and they stay at one location and are hopefully, hopefully happy doing that. Okay. I usually find that when my customers get to three locations, that's when <laughs> shit hits the fan, I guess you could say. Um, is that what you normally find too, is three is kind of the, the tricky number? Yeah, so, so three is a tricky number um, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, one of the top three things they struggle with that I mentioned before is that access to debt funds. So okay. um, usually around three locations, they're bumping up um, anywhere from about you know, one and a half to $2 million in total loan exposure. So one of the things that happens about three locations is they max out the amount that their primary bank is willing to loan them. This isn't okay. a problem with banking. I'm not pointing the finger at our, our favorite bankers and, and retail banking friends. It's really a matter of the way a bank underwrites the risk um, okay. below about $2 million in exposure versus over that. And typically the dentist that started the entire venture didn't tell their banker that the goal was to grow to a dozen locations. They just mm -hmm. told the banker that they wanted to borrow money to buy a business. And that's okay. the way the banker structured it. So the first thing is they, they start to bump up against that debt funding wall of around $2 million in loan exposure. The next thing is most of the dentists are, are that founded these groups are still practicing clinically at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, and whereas before, if they had one or two locations, that's where they spent the majority of the time. Well, now they have three. So they're bouncing between three, rot uh, three, three locations on kind of an odd rotating schedule, um, which means that they're, they're inconsistent in where they're oriented. Um, they're also starting to experience challenges in terms of leading the business for growth, profitability, 
um, hiring and firing, setting standards and processes and all that. And these are, these are aspects of running any business, whether it's a small yeah. business, a, a group practice or otherwise, um, that take a lot of time and effort, yet they're spending most of their time and effort at the chair because that's where they did yeah. derive the most income and, and revenue. Um, kind of so, reminds me of that movie, The Founder, that just came out about McDonald's and how they had all the multiple locations and they just wanted them to have burgers and the guy would show up and they were selling like fried chicken and all these other things because um, you can't be everywhere at once. So it becomes hard to manage everything. What's your... So, I mean, it's, I know it's not just like a one answer solution to that, but um, what are your tips with leading when it comes to multiple locations when you can't be everywhere at once? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is, and let's go back to your um, uh, McDonald's analogy, because I think it's, um, it's very appropriate. And uh, a lot of um, a lot of founder dentists kind of view it with some level of disdain and I get it. Nobody likes to be compared to fast food, but if you, if you take the McDonald's example and you think about it in the context of standard operating procedures, systems, processes, repeatable performance over time built for scale, that's what everybody wants to create. Nobody is going to build an immensely successful 20 location uh, DSO or group dental practice based on a gourmet restaurant model. Um, it's just, it's going to be inherently more costly and more problematic to run. So it's easier when the, the businesses are smaller. And by smaller, I mean um, fewer locations mm -hmm. to get your standard operating procedures, policies, systems, uh, levels of accountability, uh, even performance-related incentives and things like that. It's easier to get all of those in place when the business is simply smaller in scope and easier to manage. Uh, mm -hmm. Nobody likes process and procedure. We don't like getting our yeah. hands dirty. We would rather delegate that. And I'll tell you that for the founder of any uh, of these small businesses, while they are small, get your hands dirty. Do the things that aren't sexy and aren't fun, but ultimately that will get you from three locations to eight to 10 to 12, a lot easier than trying to put those systems in place when you're at eight to 10 to 12. How do you know when you're at the point to hand those things off and maybe hire a regional manager, someone that can oversee that for you? Um, I think if you're three to four locations, you really need to have um, a quality experienced regional manager that's gonna have the ability to bounce between those locations to lead team meetings, um, to deal with um, difficult employees, to make sure that people are um, following the script in the morning huddle and, and executing according to the process that you, that you lay out as the founder owner of the business. I would also say that, you know, when you're at three to four to even five locations, the founder of these businesses needs to think in terms of not just their role as the founder, but in terms of a leadership team. So mm -hmm. specifically, the founder is going to be visionary and CEO of the business, more than likely. Um, they're going to be um, the chief clinical officer, more than likely. Um, but they need some, uh, some uh, group of teammates that they can count on. These are usually people that are homegrown, uh, that have been with them since day one and know how they like the business to be run. Uh, these are people that uh, the founder owner can entrust um, to 
successfully um, help integrate new acquisitions or if it's a startup de novo model, um, uh, some people that they can drop into a new location that ensures that that new location starts to perform all but immediately in terms of the systems and the way the other businesses are, are situated from a contextual standpoint. What are those people usually defined as? I know regional manager is a common one. Um, I usually work with a lot of supply chain managers that are in charge of the supplies, but um, are you talking like a team including like a CFO and stuff like that or? Not yet. Okay. So there is an org chart uh, type of a, a process to this. And I think uh, another one of the fallacies is that um, you know, a, a founder dentist of a, a three or four location uh, group practice immediately wants to hire a chief financial officer or a chief operating officer. Anything that's got a C before it, you're going to have to pay at least six figures for it. And you're also going to be expecting um, some level of professional schooling and a lot of, um, prof you should be expecting a high level of professional experience when you're hiring the chief of something. What I would say is that you know, think about the functions that you want to replicate when the business is small. Um, specifically, that regional operations person is going to be responsible for working with the, the, um, uh, the dental practice um, office managers primarily on the front end of the business. Mm -hmm. um, there may be some clinical liaison or somebody that works in a hygiene context um, or that helps out with the clinical side of the house. You might have a controller function uh, or somebody's um, working in a, a super accounting function that's doing more than just managing the payroll and QuickBooks, um, but okay. it's helping to manage some of the bank accounts and stuff like that. I think procurement, the one that you specifically mentioned and the whole supply chain piece is really gonna be one that's more of a, a primary responsibility as you get to the eight to 10 location yeah. uh, size and volume. Um, you know, procurement, would be a and lab negotiation and some of that kind of thing would be a, um, a another piece of probably a, a regional op operations yeah. managers type role at that level. Okay, cool. Um, let's circle back to key associates. I know that that's a huge struggle, even just for solo locations, finding the right people. What's your advice on that? Yeah, so I think. Um, the first place uh, that I would look would be, um, you know, the practices that I'm going to be acquiring. Who are the sellers? Um, and, and what is their clinical philosophy? What is their um, desire to work post-sale? Mm -hmm. uh, I think all too often people gloss right past that. You know, I'm buying somebody else's business. I'm going to kick them out the door in 60 days or something like that and replace them. You yeah. know, well, okay, fine. That may be the right thing to do in certain scenarios. But if you could actually start that conversation with a potential seller before they reach the mindset of being a seller, how great would it be for, to allow them to take some chips off the table and be able to retain them for five to 10 years to keep the business humming along, okay. um, especially if you share clinical philosophies. So the other thing is that people look at acquisitions far too often just in terms of how much, what's the revenue and how much is it going to cost me? they don't really um, go through an itemized or objective list of things that they really value in the business in the first place. And one of those would probably be a seller who shared philosophies, who ran a good business, and also who wants to stay on board 
for an indefinite period of time. Let's, let's okay. face it, people who are older in their career tend to bounce around a heck of a lot less than younger dentists do, understandably. Yeah. Um, the next thing I would tell you is when it comes to sourcing associates is that culture matters and you need to pay attention to creating culture again earlier on in the formation of the business versus uh, casting it aside or thinking that it doesn't matter, especially with younger millennials um, and people who are more value oriented. Those who share your same values are going to be willing to stay longer. And the third thing I'll tell you in terms of sourcing uh, associates is that you need to consider um, an equity provision for them. Um, a stake in the business. Sometimes that's them putting up cash, um, some level of, of dollars to buy into the business. Others is an earned equity compensation model structure um, that allows them to earn equity in the business through superior performance. And some could be something like a profits interest unit, um, uh, profit share type of a scenario. But anything you can do to incent them to be part of the business from a contribution standpoint, uh, and certainly a retention standpoint will serve you well um, for a long, long time. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. I never thought of that, of giving them equity into it. Well, that's why you have a guy like me on your podcast, Sarah. <laughs> I'm just hung up that you were uh, giving millennials a hard time. Those dang millennials. <laughs> Everybody else does. I felt like I should pile on at this point. <laughs> uh, and then just real quick, let's, let's circle back to the debt funding. Uh, Cause I know you mentioned that people max out around the 2 million point. So if you're in that position where you have your private bank, whoever it is, that's helped you build a couple of practices and they tell you, okay, you're done. Uh, what do you do? Yeah. So the first thing you do is you tell the bank your intentions before you buy your first or second uh, um, practice. Um, and most dentists don't. They're just looking for the cheapest cost of funds. If you're only going to own one or two locations, dirt cheap cost of funds is really all you're interested in. If your goal is to own 10, yeah. tell the bank that earlier on, because they may tell you one of a couple of things. They may tell you up front, look, we're not, that's not our game. We don't want to be in that. You need to find another lender who will go the distance. Clarity is important early on. The okay. second thing they may say is, okay, we'll go to 10 with you, but we'll only allow you to acquire one every other year. Does that meet your timetable? It may or it may not. Hmm. But what happens is dentists look for cheap cost of funds. They get to two or three, maybe four locations, around $2 million in total exposure. That's not a hard number. Um, but then the bank sees them come back and want to buy or want to borrow money to buy the fourth or fifth location. And the bank says, wait a minute, you know, we loaned you money when you were working in those two locations, twice, you know, two days per location, uh, four days a week, and you had control of them. Now you're splitting your time between four and potentially five. Are you going to be in those locations every day of the week? Probably not. That increases our risk profile from a lending context. So what a dentist will typically do is have um, their primary first couple of practices with one bank. When the first bank says, we're tapped out, we're not going any further, they'll go to a local lender, municipal lender, city, or, or a local type of a lender for subordinated debt, meaning higher cost of funds, usually more um, uh, excessive prepayment penalties. And they end up with this convoluted cost of capital structure where they have six or eight locations with four or five different banks. That's not the way to fund a growth strategy. 
if you that's know you're not, get, that typically would void certain things in their contracts too correct so technically speaking yes they probably are going to be in violation of multiple covenants from multiple banks as long as the banks are getting paid on time and consistently they'll probably turn a blind eye to that if something okay. should ever happen where that's not the case the the founder owner that's highly leveraged with multiple banks is going to be in a world of hurt Okay. Um, so we, we try to reach them early on to help them avoid that scenario. And if they know they want to build a 20 location group or whatever, and we can forecast that it's going to take them $10 million to do that, why not secure a guidance line of credit that allows them to, to access that and draw upon it to fund their growth strategy as long as they continue to operate within the, the leverage and liquidity ratios that the bank predefines. All you're looking to do early on is just learn how the game is played learn yeah. how the bank makes decisions and operate within those uh, within that set of criteria and be clear about your intentions. Now, if you're someone who starts a practice, you're successful, and then years down the line, you say to yourself, I, I think I could do this. I want to open 10 more, pra five more practices, whatever. Um, obviously, you didn't tell your bank that up front because that was not your intention. So are those people in a different position because they can't start off on the right foot? No. So what I, what I would say is in that scenario, if they've owned one location for a handful of years and it's a successful location, it's performing well, they've probably been paying down the principal con consistently over the first five years of the 10-year term of that loan. So okay. from a leverage standpoint, um, assuming the business is profitable and the cash flows are nice, um, they probably don't have a, a large level of exposure. At that point, though, the bank is going to, you want to communicate to the bank, the borrower would want to communicate to the bank that, look, I've got one location right now that's performing well and I've paid off a lot of my debt. I'd like to go through a process of acquiring between five and 10 locations over the next five to six years. Here's my business plan to do it. Here's the forecast that I think is going to do it. Here's what I'm going to plan to acquire these businesses for in terms of uh, amount of debt. And they can look at it from a much more of a cash flow standpoint with, um, the, uh, with the bank versus just an asset criteria that the bank would otherwise make um, lending decisions based off of. The value of your home, the value of your cars, um, yeah. retirement funds, that kind of stuff. So I think getting into that conversation with the bank um, from a more concrete level, from a business plan context, will um, allow you to source a more appropriate lender who's set up to fulfill whatever the goals are of the business plan. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Stay tuned, guys, for our next episode where we're going to talk about the top three things to know when acquiring a practice. Thank you so much for tuning in to another Dental Bright Bites episode. Please be sure to subscribe, leave a review, or better yet, share us with one of your friends. Thanks again, and until the next episode.